God, we do thank you for your word, which we are about to open. God, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, may you give us instruction, help us to understand it. God, help us to understand what we are about to do is, and as we've been doing is spending time with you, worshiping you. God, may our worship continue as we study who you are, your word that you've given us for enlightenment that pertains to all things in life. God, we thank you for Christ and what it means. God, we pray for our time in your word. May you give me the words to say this morning. May you, through the Holy Spirit, speak to hearts and minds. May we, because of this, leave here people able to bring you more glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 7? John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, is where we're going to go. And we're going to work through 10 verses this morning. John chapter 7, verse 1. A few weeks back, we were in John chapter 6. And if you remember John chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, it said, The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. We come to John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And I'll read it for us this morning if you follow along. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, for the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go down to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. For if you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me, because I testify about it, and the works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. We know between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7, about six months had passed. Because in John 6, we see the the Passover feast was taking place. And now in John 7, we see that the the Feast of Booths is taking place. And there's about six months span in there. And the Feast of Booths is also called the Feast of Tabernacle. It normally occurs in late September, early October. So it just occurred. And this is a time where the Jewish people celebrated God's provision. It was about the harvest that was about to coming, but also about the time in the wilderness back in the Old Testament, where God was faithful for those 40 years. So they were commanded to build booths and to live in these booths for seven days. This practice still goes on today. I have a couple pictures here for us. This is an older type booth. This is what it would have looked like. So they were commanded to build these booths that they would have represented how they slept back in the desert. And so this is what a traditional booth would look like. And then we have a modern day booth coming up. These are actually some pre-built booths where they stay and live today. This is actually in Israel, but there's booths like this even in Brooklyn, New York. You can go during these days and sometimes maybe some of you have been driving and you've seen some of these booths. They were commanded to build them in certain ways. Uh, They're built even with power tools today. That's not... A, uh, a sin to do so, but they have to follow certain commands like putting palm branches. The palm branches just had to be laying on the top. So there's certain criteria for them to build these booths. So this is a setting 
of what was happening at this time. They were in celebration of God's faithfulness, God's provision from leaving the land of Egypt. And we come to verse 3, and it says, So his brothers said to Jesus. This is a reference to Jesus' literal brothers. The Catholic Church, official doctrine on this is Jesus did not have literal brothers. He had stepbrothers, or they were just cousins. Because they believed that Mary was a virgin for her whole life, and so she never had children. This is an unbiblical view. We don't find it in the Bible. The Bible actually says Jesus had four brothers, and they were his real brothers. So these are his real brothers. So his brothers said to him, being Jesus, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. We see these brothers come alongside of Jesus, and they tell him what to do and how to do it. And we're going to spend a significant amount of time this morning looking at this conversation between Jesus and his brothers. And there's a lot of problems in this dialogue that took place, but they all stem, the problems all stem from verse 5. Take a look in verse 5, what it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. This is the reason I've titled my sermon this morning, Bad Counsel from Dead Company. Bad counsel from dead company. We know in the Bible that it talks about being dead in our sins. If we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we are dead. We are dead in our sins. We're spiritually dead. And the Bible often speaks that spiritually dead people give bad counsel. Dead counsel. And so this leads to our first point this morning. Spiritually dead men produce spiritually dead advice. Spiritually dead women produce spiritually dead advice. Now, I'm not saying that their advice may be wrong. I'm just saying it's always spiritually lacking. It's always spiritually void. It's always bankrupt of the right motives. For instance, they may tell you something that I would agree with, but the motives behind their heart telling you versus the motives behind a believer's heart are probably vastly different. And we're going to look at that this morning. The Bible always says that godly wisdom comes from godly individuals. It never gives us an unbeliever producing godly wisdom. Psalms 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. The Bible clearly shares with us that our counsel of advisors should not be unbelievers and those in this world, but godly individuals. And notice how this advice was given to Jesus. I'm sure you've received advice or just an opportunity like this from others. They didn't come to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, maybe you should do this. Or it's an option. Or, hey, if this fits with what your plans are, you could do this. Notice what they say. Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. They boldly declare what Jesus should do and how to do it. And they give him instructions how to do it. Maybe this is how we 
often are given advice in our own lives. The Bible speaks of someone who gives advice this way. Proverbs 12, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. Someone comes to you and you share with them a situation or maybe you've seen someone talking with an unbeliever. And even believers sometimes can do this. And rather than thinking through the situation or praying through the situation, they just throw out their advice as in it's factual. They just, like a sword, they're jabbing the sword. This is the way you have to do it. There's no other really option. This is what the brothers did to Jesus. They explicitly told him. And it's the same for you and I. Unbelievers cannot understand what our end goals are. Because our end goals are vastly different than they used to be as a believer. And I want us to think about this. If these brothers had enough gumption and gall to come to Jesus, the Son of God, perfect in every way, right? And they've lived with Him their whole life. And they've seen how He's handled every situation in a God-glorifying way. And they still come to Him and they tell Him what to do. I want you to think, what about the family in your life that advises you? Or the friends in your life that advises you? Or the coworkers, Or anyone else, the spouse, the children, your friends, your schoolmates? If they did this to Jesus, we need to understand it happens to us. We're given ungodly counsel and advice, almost like that's the only, that's the only choice. So we need to understand we're being inundated, probably, with advice that is ungodly advice. I want us to think about marriage. How often marriages are given ungodly advice. I mean, is there really even a hope for a godly marriage if they don't know Christ? For them to have a God-glorifying marriage. I know many of us may even think, Well, I know that my family loves me, so I should be able to have counsel from them or my friends. I know my friends really care about me in school, so I can at least listen to their counsel, right? Even though they're not believers. Listen, the Bible says we don't even understand love until we become a believer. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this. And it goes on to tell us what this is. That He, Jesus Christ, laid down His life for us. We only know love because of what He's shown us. That means before He had shown it to us, we didn't know love. 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for us. Which means your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving co-workers, and your unbelieving family don't even have the right perspective of love. So if we think they can give us godly advice because they love us, we're being foolish. Because they don't even understand love regarding husbands and wives. I mean, maybe there's a couple you know, and they're being advised by unbelievers. How can there be any hope for a marriage to glorify God if the people giving the advice don't have a relationship with the Lord? But secondly, they don't even understand love. I think we can all agree that our definition of love has vastly changed from when we were an unbeliever to a believer today. Amen? I mean, my definition of love 
has changed dramatically from when I was an unbeliever to today being a believer growing in the Lord. Just this past weekend, we were at a wedding. How many of you have heard bad wedding advice, right? I mean, every wedding, it seems like there's this advice thrown around from the world. And I heard it multiple times. I saw it on the little plaque that they were given. The first thing on the plaque of ways to stay happy in the marriage, listen to your heart. Where does the Bible ever teach this? But it's told all over the place. And it's written in the little books, marriage advice. Listen, if we all listen to our heart in the marriage, my house would probably be destroyed. Maybe there would be more lamps broken in some of your homes. We're not called to listen to our heart. We're called to suppress that and not do a lot of times what our heart is telling us to do. Don't throw that, right? Don't say that. That's what we're supposed to be suppressing. Don't listen to your heart. And so there's all this advice that, that sounds good, but it's really not good advice. I have a personal story that I'd like to share regarding just unbelievers trying to influence a believer with their advice. I praise God that today my dad is growing in the Lord. But when I was in high school, I don't think he was a believer. And so many of you even met my dad just a couple of weeks ago. He was here. And my life dramatically changed after I received Christ. And within a year, I felt the call to ministry. And it was a a radical transformation. Up until this point, I wanted to be an architect and go into engineering. So I was at a tech school. I was going to graduate with a two-year degree, kind of jump-starting this occupation for my life. And so my parents were both excited about that, and I had been saved for about a year pursuing the Lord. Never even thought about ministry as a job, as an occupation. I don't even know how. I mean, I never even thought that's something somebody did. I just was going to to youth group, and at a youth event, God got a hold of my heart. And, And we talk about the irresistible call of God. It was an irresistible call to ministry. I could do nothing else but ministry, and God made it very clear to me. One night, I I went in to this youth event, wanting to be an architect, engineer. I came out, had surrendered my job to the Lord, and was now going to be in ministry for the rest of my life. How did that happen? Well, I went, and I was excited. I told my parents, and and I got mixed feedback. I got mixed feedback from a lot of my friends, a lot of my family. And I remember the conversations, and and. The only way I can say that I endured them is by the grace of God. Because looking back, my dad grew up poor. He had to fight for everything he had, and he didn't want that for me. And so I knew where he was coming from. But but my dad was saying things like, listen, I know that you, you know, you imagine being a dad and your son has been pursuing this. He's going to get a two-year degree, and all of a sudden, that's thrown out away, and now he's going to go be a pastor. I mean, it sounds crazy. And so I told my dad, and he said, you know, I think we're moving too harsh here. You know, we need need to take a step. We need to take a step back. And I understand you you want to do ministry, but maybe you, you do that on the side, and you do the architecture and engineering thing, and you have that as your foundation. And really, that's going to be how you provide for you to do this ministry on the side. I mean, you can support the church this way, and ministry can kind of be something you do on the side. And I remember just having a clear thought of mind, thinking, 
that's not acceptable. That's not what the Lord has called me to do. So I had to tell my dad in 11th grade, that's not what God has called me to do. He's called me to do this. There's nothing else I can do. I remember hearing from multiple people multiple times, but God also gave you a brain. And you're supposed to be using that too in this decision making. What you're doing is not making sense. Pastors don't make any money, right? Do you see, do you hear the persuasiveness, the wisdom of the world, how it sounds so clear and it would be so persuasive? And this is a lot of times what we hear from our family and from our friends and from our coworkers. And it's many times diabolically opposed to what God is teaching us in his word. This is the same information that these brothers brought to Jesus. So I want to ask us this morning, can you identify what people in your life have influence and speak into your life this morning? Are there unbelievers who have your ear? And you find yourself sometimes listening to their advice maybe more than you think you should. Have your eyes been opened that they're a different part of this whole system? They're a different part of this world. These brothers told Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, what to do. Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you're doing. They went on in verse 4, For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things regarding the miracles, show yourself to the world. These brothers, just like the crowds before, they saw the miracles, but they still did not believe. Terry preached last week, 99% of the crowd had just left Jesus. He just left. Everybody just left him. It kind of reminded me like the presidential candidate, candidating going on right now. That they're, they're po- when their polling numbers are down, what do they do? They go out and, and they campaign. And they get on the TV and they get on the radio. They do all these things. And that's what these brothers were thinking. Jesus just had a serious setback. He lost most of the people. He needs to get out there. He needs to get his message heard. He needs to let them see these miracles to build his crowd back up. But verse 5 comes along, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now later in scripture, we see that some of his family did come to Christ. We're not told about all of them, but some of them did. And do we find it odd this morning that scriptures are teaching that even the brothers of Jesus Christ at this point were unbelievers? I mean, these brothers had spent the last 30 years knowing Christ, growing up in the same home as Jesus, probably even living in the same room as Jesus. Do we find it odd that they didn't even comprehend who Jesus was, that his attitude was different, that his thoughts were different? His words were always seasoned with salt and grace and truth and love in everything he said. He never once responded harshly in the flesh. His demeanor was one of gentleness, patience, self-controlled, always loving, never sinning once against the Lord. Can you imagine having a family member like that? What do you think, church? Can you imagine having a family member like that and not even realizing something was different? That he was maybe from the Lord? I mean, that's what they were. I mean, they had 
a family member like this. Yet still they did not believe, Scripture tells us. I've been visiting different connect groups and hearing deep theological discussions as we've been preaching through John. And we're encouraged to find so many of you diving deep into theology, diving deep into the biblical truths. And we come to this difficult thought. How could a few uneducated fishermen and tax collectors in John 6, just a few verses before, say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you are the only one of God. How can some uneducated men who just met Jesus become believers, and they're sold out for Christ, yet even his own brothers, who have been with Jesus for 30 years, still not be a believer? That's something you're going to talk about this week in your connect groups. That's a deep doctrine. How do we answer that, diving in to that? The only possible solution I see to this quandary is that that they were spiritually blind. They were spiritually deaf. And that they were oblivious to the divine in the same room with them. Some of you may be thinking, as we've been preaching through John, why do we have to deal with these deep questions? Right? Why do we have to deal with these deep theological doctrines? I mean, why does it matter why they were believers or why weren't they believers yet? Why does that matter? Can't we just see they're not a believer and then move on? Well, I think it hugely matters, and I want to share with you why. Because verse 5, how we see verse 5, look in your Bible, verse 5, how we view that directly affects our evangelism. It directly affects the way we view and carry out our evangelism. You see, verse 5 for me either gives me encouragement and hope that I'm called to boldly preach the gospel and leave the results up to God. And as I'm faithful to the word of God in preaching that if someone does not come to Christ, I know it's in the sovereignty of God and it's in his care and he does what he wishes to do with his word. And I continue to pursue that person with the word of God, knowing and trusting that his word does not return void, and it will accomplish its intended purpose in his life. Or, verse 5 can be very despairing. That even Jesus himself, after being a perfect witness to his brothers for 30 years, always saying what was right, always doing what was right, always pointing them back to the Lord, that even Jesus himself could not get his brothers to believe in him. That's despairing. That's the way I used to believe. It's called free will of man. Or you can see verse 5 very differently. This all flows from your theology. So I ask these tough questions to dive us deeper into the Word of God. Dive deep into the Word of God. Terry asks a question. Was Jesus always successful in his preaching? Did it always have its intended effect? Or... Did it fail when people turned away from him? Was Jesus preaching and teaching always faithful? Was it always perfect? Did it always have its intended effect upon the hearers? If we say yes, there's some conclusions there. If we say no, there's some conclusions there. Is our ministry success measured by converts, answered prayers, crowds? Or is our ministry success always measured by faithfulness? To the word of God. So I ask you for verse 5. Does it embolden you to share your faith 
in Christ and leave the results up to God? Or does it give you a picture of Jesus who is unable to reach some people? It flows from your theology. Let's look in verse 6 because things get even more difficult. Verse 6 says, Jesus said to them, his unbelieving brothers, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. First, we need to understand who the reference is to the world. As you're studying through John, the word world is mentioned over 10 times in 10 different meanings. If you look at this word world, it has 10 different meanings throughout the book of John. And we need to make sure we understand what the meaning is. John chapter 1, sometimes it's talking about the whole universe, the world. Sometimes it's talking about the literal world. Sometimes it's talking about unbelievers. Sometimes it's talking about both. Sometimes it's talking about just believers. And so we need to understand the context. So we see here in verse 4, For no one works in secret if he seeks to do these things openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This means just presenting yourself to a large mass of people. Going up and presenting yourself to the world. Making a public appearance. The world Jesus is speaking of here in verse 7 are those who are unbelievers. Dead in their sin. Hostile to God. So verse 7. The world, those who are unbelievers, cannot hate the brothers. I encourage you as we're studying the word of God, as you're reading the word of God, have a sheet of paper and a pencil or a pen. Because when you come to words like this, and this is how I do sermon preparation, is I'm sitting down with my Bible, I'm sitting down with a paper, and I'm working through verse by verse before anything else. And when I come to something, I write it out. I ask a question. When we come to a strong word like cannot, must, always, never, no one, truly, impossible. These are definite words, right? They're strong. Never means what, church? Never. Always means what? Always. So we come to these words, we need to understand God is trying to tell us always, never, must, impossible. We need to understand this. And it says in verse 7, the world cannot hate these brothers. Why? That's a question I wrote out. Why can't the world hate these brothers? Goes to our next point this morning. The world loves its own. It can't hate its own because it loves its own. Jesus says, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The brothers are in the world. They were part of the world. Thus, they cannot be hated by the world and the world cannot hate itself. God only gives us two options in Scripture. We are either in Christ or we are in the world. Those who are in Christ are loved by the Father. Those who are in the world are loved by the world. Listen to John 15, 19. We'll get there one day, but we're not there yet. John 15, 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Scripture goes on, Matthew 10, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and a children will raise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. 
Scripture speaks about endurance, enduring till the end. Last year or last week, Pastor Terry preached that part of God's family, those who are in Christ, will remain part of God's family in Christ. This is the biblical doctrine known as perseverance of the saints, also called eternal security, also called once saved, always saved. How many of you have ever heard that before? Raise your hand. Okay, so once saved, always saved. Now, I'm not talking about just because someone said a prayer. Listen, I said a prayer and I wasn't saved or I raised my hand or I walked an aisle. That's not what scripture is talking about. It's talking about someone who's given their life to Christ and there's no turning back. They've submitted fully to Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people in a lot of churches who raise their hand or said a prayer and they're not really believers. This is what scripture teaches. Terry asked the question in Connect Group, why will the believer endure and stay faithful to Christ until the very end? It was one of Terry's main points. It's because we have been made secure in Christ. Our security in Christ, it does not come from ourselves. It comes from God granted by Him. It flows from the top down. When you make a purchase, we just had Black Friday, how many went shopping? Nobody. Great. All right. (laughs) Two people. Good job, all right? So we were crazy ones. We went out even with two kids. So I don't know why we did that. But so when you make a purchase, it's yours, right? This is what Scripture speaks about. When Jesus died on the cross, he purchased us. 1 Corinthians 6, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Revelations 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, what did Jesus do? He purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. He purchased. He made a purchase. Revelation speaks about the book that's going to be open, right? And there are names, what? Written in the book. Notice it's past tense, written. God is not sitting up in heaven wondering who's going to come, writing out your name when you make a profession. The names have already been written. And he's also not up in heaven sitting with a large eraser, erasing names, right? The names have been written and scripture speaks about since the beginning of time. I know that that is a very difficult thought to have, but it's what scripture teaches. He's not erasing names. Just this past week, we talked about Revelation, and someone said, hey, what about the end of Revelation? It makes it sound like that there, there's an erase, that that's not the context there. Revelation 3, 5 interprets that. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. We've been made secure in Christ. John chapter 6, verse 39 This is the will of God the Father who sent Jesus Christ, that all that have been given to him, who have been given to Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I will lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. We have to ask the question, does Jesus only keep those of us who keep ourselves? Because that's not a purchase. That means we're keeping us in ourselves with our salvation. No, it says... He will keep all that God has given us. This is why a true follower of Jesus Christ does not turn away. We endure because we have been saved. And because I am saved, what do I do, church? I endure. 
That's the way it works. I'm going to continue in the faith because I have been saved. And because I have been saved, I will endure to the end. That's what Scripture teaches. Over in 1 John, it says, hey, those who left the church were what? Never part of the church to begin with. That's what Scripture teaches. So we believe in the eternal security. Once saved, always saved. Jesus did not lie. When he said, I will not lose one that have been given to me by God the Father, he meant it. I will not lose one. Notice it was God who entrusted us to who? Jesus. We did not entrust ourselves to God, and then God entrusted us to Jesus. That's not what the scriptures teach. The shepherd finds us. That's the good news. It's never us finding the shepherd. So in verse 7, it says, The world cannot hate the brothers, because the brothers were part of the world. But it does hate me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. I want to continue in our study in verses 8, 9, and 10. The next three verses can seem confusing. It almost makes it look like Jesus lied, or that he's hypocritical. Or just that he's scatterbrained. Let's look through these. And I'll read them and then I'll go back and explain them. Verse 8. Jesus speaking to the brothers. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone to the feast, then Jesus also went up, not publicly, but in private We need to understand the context. Context is key. I want you to remember that. Context is key. We need to understand the context. Jesus is speaking to his brothers about the conversation they've been having. Right? The brothers came to Jesus and they said, Hey, go up to the feast and do it this way, this way, this way. Show yourself to the world. Show them you do miracles. Jesus said, No, I'm not going up to to the feast. My time has not yet came. This is the same thing he told his mother back in John 2. My time is not yet here. This time, time word, is the Greek word keros. And it means opportune. It means the perfect time. When it's suitable. And so Jesus is saying, no, this is not the right time for me to go up. So I'm not going up to the feast. Meaning, I'm not going up to the feast in the same manner that you've commanded me to go. So they went up to the feast. Jesus, it says, remained in Galilee. He waited until the opportune time because he did everything according to the Father's will. So he did everything perfectly in time. He waited. His brothers went up, verse 10. Then he also went up. And notice scripture, not contradicting itself, but clarifying this is the meaning of the passage, that he went up not publicly, which is what his brothers wanted him to do, But he went up privately, showing us that Jesus was beating to the march of a different drum. He was listening to God the Father, not the advice of this world. So Terry, next week we'll pick up in verse 11. But as I close this morning, I hope you understand the dangers of listening to counsel and advice from this world. There are those who are in Christ and those who are in the world. The two advice... The wisdom from each are diabolically opposed to one another. Bad advice comes from the mouth of dead men. 
That's the only way it can happen. They can't bring forth spiritual significance because they have no spiritual significance. If we think about what it means to be in Christ, it means we're spiritually alive. If we're saved, we're spiritually alive. Those in the world, spiritually dead. If we're in Christ, our purpose is to glorify God. Those not in Christ, what's their purpose? Glorify self. We've been set apart for holiness. They're defiled by sin. They love their sin. We're hated by the world as believers. They're loved by the world. We have wisdom from God. They have foolishness from the flesh. We can hear from the Lord. They can't have discerning things from the Lord. Their their ears are closed. We can see and perceive spiritual things. Scripture says their eyes are blinded. We understand Biblical love, because we have been shown biblical love. They can't understand biblical love. So our purpose is different. Our attitudes are different. Our goals are different. So as you're listening, and as you're hearing advice from this world, I want us to think there are two systems that give advice in this world. One from God, and one from this world, which really is Satan's world, right? It's, it's bad information, so be on guard church. A few questions for us this morning. How much time are we spending listening to the advice of the world? Do we set aside time to listen to advice from those who are godly and also God's word? Do we spend time studying God's word? Do we see how much it affects us when we're in contact with with even family members who are unbelievers. We need to set them aside, even just mentally, knowing that their advice, their counsel, is coming from an unbelieving heart, if they're an unbeliever. And they don't even understand love. And so we're called to reach them. But we just need to be careful. This morning, maybe you haven't trusted in Christ. Maybe the Lord's getting hold of your heart in that way. I encourage you, call out to Him. Call out to Him. He's calling you, loves you, cares for you. I encourage you, if you're feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit, not to close that door. Church, would you pray with me this morning? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. God, we thank you for wisdom. God, we thank you for loving us. God, we thank you that you will not lose one. God, we thank you for saving us. We pray that you give us wisdom and discernment to to know the areas in our life where we are being bombarded by counsel from this world. God, I pray for steadfastness, for discernment to be able to see counsel as godly counsel. God, I thank you for the Holy Spirit that as it indwells us as believers, when we're given bad information so many times, we may not even know why it's wrong, but we know it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't settle with us right. And that's because you have set us apart and you're giving us discernment. So God, I pray that we may walk wisely in this world. May we follow your word. God, we thank you for the deep truths of scripture. God, I know they're difficult. They're difficult for me. They're difficult for us. 
but God, they're in your word. So help us study your word to continue diving deep into John. May it continue to bring about just more and more digging into the glories of God, the goodness of you, your attributes, your love. God, we thank you for everything you've done this morning. I thank you for this church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.